Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each Thursday, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. Enjoy the show! Hi, I'm Gabe. I'm Grant. And I'm Lisa. Hi. Uh, so we got a brand new set of guests today. Uh, Grant Stancliffe is with Equality Ohio, which is one of the state's leading LGBT uh, advocacy organizations. Uh, Lisa Worm is with ACLU Ohio. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking about each of their organizations, uh, but then we're going to get into a nasty little piece of legislation that brought them here today. Um, so first, uh, Grant, can you talk about Equality Ohio and just let people know how did the organization come to be and what do you guys do? Equality Ohio was founded in 2005 after Ohio voters voted overwhelmingly to ban same-sex marriage. Um, there was a sense after that vote um, that LGBTQ people in Ohio needed a central voice and a place that could be in a position to fight back threats, uh, both political and, and social, towards towards the towards LGBTQ folks. So. Um, 65 leaders from across the state gathered in a room, and uh, a few days later, um, after deciding what was needed, out came Equality Ohio and Equality Ohio uh, Education Fund. So our primary role is to be in places where decisions are being made about LGBTQ people so that we can uh, speak back and represent the community. That's excellent. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember 2004 more than anything. Um, you know, the, the whole constitutional amendment to ban marriage equality, uh, in Ohio. Um, I mean, it was already illegal at the time. They were just making it like super extra illegal, um, which is, is totally asinine. Um, but I remember that, that moment, uh, because we had people out there collecting, um, not collecting signatures. We were on the other side. Um, we were reviewing the signatures uh, because, you know, at that year, uh, the Bush versus Kerry presidential campaign was heating up so much. Um, and then we had a ton of people. I was working uh, out at SEIU at the time. Um, and we had a, a ton of people who had come into Ohio from all parts of the country because they knew that Ohio was an important swing state, many of them were gay and felt really strongly about stopping this constitutional amendment. Uh, and so, you know, there was there was one point where um, they were bringing in signatures to review. We had, you know, we had a, a lawyer who uh, who'd gotten all of these ballot petitions, but we were going to try and review them to stop this from getting on the ballot. Um, and there was a point where somebody said, "Hey, we could do this, but we don't have any tables." And one of the guys just literally like ran to the store and ordered tables. And the next day a delivery truck came by, you know, like the, the big long banquet tables, the huge folding tables. He was like, no, no, I'm not going to let this stop because we don't have enough tables. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, passion behind that. Um, and then of course, losing that, that year was a terrible election year was a horrible setback. So, you know, when you say it was 2005, I, I didn't realize that's when you guys started, but um, that really seemed to be the point where we as a nation said, no, 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 we need to stop this bullshit uh, 
and and start actively working to protect you know equality and respect for you know for all people. So yeah, I uh, I'm actually in Ohio import, so I wasn't here in Ohio in 2004 or 2005. It was a shitty but, year. Yeah, was, and and, and what I heard was that the next day, um, you know, the vote was basically 66 percent of Ohioans voted against this, so about yeah. two thirds, right? And so I, I remember hearing stories of people saying, you know, they woke up, they'd, you know, get in their car, stop off for a cup of coffee and realize like, oh man, two out of three people <laughs> that yeah. I'm, I'm looking at right now yeah. voted against, you know, this like basic right, you know, whether or not people even wanted to get married. It was just the fact that people were voting against the possibility of, of marriage and, and also, and also equality. And, and, and you mentioned tables and, uh, made me think I was of a conversation I was having with somebody where in a sense you can measure the strength and size of a movement based on how much how many tables you have like how much stuff <laughs> you have accumulated how much capacity you have right. to actually mobilize human beings and and get things done and i think right. about the difference between um now and 2005 when we started and uh we're up to um you know in, in addition to having having marriage equality nationwide but just in Ohio, um, you know, one of the biggest things we're working on is that, uh, you know, LGBTQ people aren't included in Ohio's existing uh, laws making discrimination uh, I- I- uh, illegal. So what we're trying to do is get that passed at the, at the statewide level. But also, um, until that happens, going city by city, adding in sexual orientation and, and gender identity and expression into local laws. And, and we're up to 16 cities so far that... Have that in their laws preventing discrimination in employment, housing, and in public accommodations. That's good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so that's that's the the organization in general. Specifically, what brought you guys here today uh, is a new piece of legislation um, called the Pastor Protection Act, which, of course, like like all of these evil little bills, uh, has a, a very nice name. We're going to protect pastors. Uh, what is this thing? Well, the Pastor Protection Act, House Bill 36, is a piece of legislation that uh, is actually a carryover from the last Ohio legislature. Um, it's been introduced both times by Representative Nino Vitale, and the what Representative Vitale says this bill does is protects pastors from being forced to marry um, same-sex couples. Is is that a problem that's happening in the state of Ohio? <laughs> what do you think, Lisa, from the ACLU? <laughs> well, I'd have to say, in the many times they've been asked, um, there is no evidence that that has been happening, uh, as well as that they are already protected under state and federal law. Because they don't have to do this if they don't want to. Correct. In our First Amendment, it's very clear of our U.S. Constitution right. that clergy do not have to marry anyone that don't um, align with their faith traditions. So that can be anyone from a Catholic priest uh, refusing to marry someone who is Jewish, uh, which is, of course, longstanding and makes sense um, because it is their their freedom of expression of religion. So, uh, and it's actually very interesting because the sponsor of the bill actually says that this doesn't have anything to do with same-sex marriage. And he kind of talks out both sides of his mouth. 
by talking about the Obergefell decision, which was the Supreme Court decision in 2015 that brought us marriage equality. Uh, he talks about that. From in one, Ohio. From Ohio, which, exactly. Which I'm always proud to point out. <laughs> so proud. Buckeyes brought the nation marriage equality. Uh, and so um, he and other uh, sponsors of the bill, supporters of the bill, uh, say that it doesn't have anything to do with same-sex marriage and that us as advocates are creating that uh, fuel for the fire. What? Yeah. <laughs> they, and, and this is a really strong position that we heard in particular last night during, during testimony about this bill. Three and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yep, three and a half hours. Um, to, the, to discuss banning something that's already not a thing. I mean, this is yeah. three yeah. and a half hours, basically wasted time. Yeah. And, and you know, nobody in the room has ever met somebody or heard about a court case where a same-sex couple was trying to sue a pastor to force them to marry. Um, and and, and like, like Lisa said, each time we would bring up the fact that, like, hey, the Obergefell decision happened, and now you're introducing this thing about um, couples being forced to marry. Um, and he insists that the bill um, is not made with bias or with animus or with same-sex couples in mind. It's and granted, it's not in it's not in the language. It's also not made with logic in mind. But go ahead. Right, <laughs> and uh, but the examples he used in his own testimony and in, in, in proponent testimony were two lawsuits. Um, one lawsuit was a uh, transgender man who. Um, oh no, it wasn't a transgender man. It was it was a same-sex couple who sued what was functionally a retreat center, kind of a cottage on the lake sort of thing, um, because they were denied um, access to it to have their, their, their wedding ceremony there. And he cites that as a need for um, pastors to have this kind of extra legal protection, but that's not even a pastor being sued, right? And then the other example he uses, which is actually a lot more chilling, was a transgender man who sued a Catholic hospital for um, denying him medically necessary care. And so... That shows to me <laughs> that even if in the language of the law we might not see, you know, same-sex couples, um, there is clearly animus intended um, just in the examples that he used in his, own, in his own testimony. So you say that suit was because a Catholic hospital denied care, and somehow that's made to be an equivalency of a pastor taking place in a... You know, it, so when I got married, my my memory of the process was you go to the courthouse and you get the legal documents, and that's like the part that the state does. And then you go to the church if you want. The hospital <laughs> isn't usually a step in a marriage. No, right. I, I haven't heard. I mean, you know, it, it depends on your thing, but it, that wasn't a step in my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this is also an, an example of how we are at a tipping point in our country and that uh, women are uh, routinely denied care at Catholic hospitals as well. Um, right. And, you know, the, the National, National ACLU came out with a report around this issue regarding women whose lives were put in jeopardy because the hospital, Catholic hospital, said that they could not perform an abortion essentially until 
the woman was on her deathbed. Uh, and this is, this is an example of the concern that we have as advocates, um, and especially for LGBTQ people, is that once we start down this road of talking about discrimination, especially for medical care, how that will affect the treatment um, of LGBT people when they go to see their doctor, when they go to the hospital. So this, you know, this Pastor Protection Act seems innocuous, and in some ways it is, but it's the conversation that it starts, and it's the message that it's sending, which is what we, as advocates, said yesterday in committee, that this is the message that you're sending to people, that pastors and this uh, fear that you're concocting, which it is real to the pastors, we need to acknowledge that, but that there are harms that you're participating in by sending the message with this bill. Right. And that takes us to the the second part of the bill, which um, for me, I, th- I think is, is the scariest in that it affords these same protections to religious societies, um, which is left undefined and is very broad. So we're not exactly sure what, what that could mean. Um, the bill says religious societies? The bill says religious societies. And so when I think about the, the, the uh, in the case of the Catholic hospital, who reser- re- refused to provide a transgender man with uh, medically necessary care, I think about, um, okay, well, he's citing this case. He's talking about religious uh, societies. It's undefined. Um, how could, and, and it only applies for, for weddings, right? It, it, it only applies for, for marriages. So I in think about yeah. <clears throat> when would you need to get married in a Catholic hospital? Like, is this even a big deal? Right. And then I thought, well, crap. Like, Jim Obergefell and John Arthur were in very much a, a similar situation, right? John was in the final stages of ALS, you know. Brutal. Yeah, he was terminally ill in hospice care. Yeah, and they had to fly <laughs> to Maryland to get married on a on a uh, on, a, on a tarmac. Yeah, <laughs> because and when so, you're in hospice care, a plane ride is what's best for you. Exactly. Right. They had to get donations from friends and family to to get this 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 medical air transport. Um, and so, ironically. Um, or maybe appropriately, the only the only situation I can think of where this would you know affect somebody is somebody who is terminally ill in a hospital and wanting to get married um, in, in their room. And so, I'm not sure how far you know putting religious societies and something like this really goes. Um, now, in terms of things like a, a sanctuary, you know, a mosque, like places where people actually worship, you know that. That makes sense where they can choose, you know, who rents it or who has access to it. Right. But when we're talking about things that are really like public accommodations, like hospitals and, you know, the cottage by the lake that just happens to be owned by a church, you know, that is just rented functionally a business. um, It becomes less and less clear, you know, when you're allowed to discriminate. Yeah. The hospital, I mean, if you needed to have a a marriage... (laughs) Uh, a wedding ceremony in your hospital room. It's not like the hospital is being asked to also provide the priest. Right. right. You, you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of times just hanging out in hospitals, uh, and you know, and just a lot of crap goes on in there and they don't ever regulate, you know, 
nobody's ever told anybody, no, no, you can't pray in this hospital room. Sure. And so if you're bringing in a member of the clergy, which is totally permissible, you know, it's, it's expected in many places that, you know, oh, you're, you're in the ICU, your clergy is going to be one of your visitors. That is an understood part of it, that they can say some kind of prayers, but not other kind of prayers, and then also sign a marriage certificate. No, that's not a thing. Well, it you would, <laughs> for, for the, for the, for the religious society's piece, it would be about, you know, whether or not the, uh, the Catholic hospital a- approves of that sort of thing, even, even happening in the room. Um, yeah. So. What the things that they, the things that they do approve of and don't approve of. Um, I'm, I was working for, this was, this was when I was working with SEIU. Uh, we were talking to hospital nurses, uh, and I had a conversation with one nurse who, uh, not just abortion care, uh, they were, uh, surgical nurses, uh, who attended during hysterectomies. And she said mm. that she would go to the hospital to work and she would clock in and she would work through her day until it was time for the surgery. When it was time for her to perform her roles attending a hysterectomy, she would literally go to the surgical room and outside clock out, step into the surgical room on a different time card, clock in, attend to the hysterectomy which was not seen as being in the Catholic institution. It was a Catholic hospital. But that room was like, no, no, the church does not approve of this one room. She would attend to the surgery when it was over. She would clock out of the surgery room and clock back in for her regular room and then finish her work day. And that was their way of saying that the Catholic Church is not participating in this hysterectomy, which, you know, was probably not something that the the woman who had to get that procedure was like, oh, well, I think I'll get a hysterectomy today. And, you know, this yeah. was medical care. Yeah. This was required for her health. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, the technicality surrounding yeah. that seems <laughs> not the best way to provide medical care for people in need. <laughs> right. And, you know, I think that's... We're entering into an, you know, I said earlier that we're at a tipping point. I guess we're probably over it because of the Hobby Lobby decision. Uh, That's why we're concerned uh, about religious societies being undefined in this bill. And there are a few references in the code to it in general, but it depends on how it's interpreted, which is, again, what we got with Hobby Lobby and how... um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act tied into that as well, which is, uh, you know, this is part of the whole debate, like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is what we hear referred to as RIFRA. RIFRA, yes. Okay, so if you hear RIFRA, it's Religious Freedom, Freedom Restoration, Restoration Act. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because your freedom needs restored. Exactly. Right. Well, and it's actually revolves around an ACLU case um, out of Washington regarding uh, employment discrimination for two um, Native Americans who were fired for using uh, peyote as part of a religious um, ceremony. So the ACLU took that case to the Supreme Court and lost. Um, And so Congress passed uh, legislation called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which the ACLU supported and was signed into law by Bill Clinton. and it's been rather innocuous since the mid-90s until um, the 
issue of the day became LGBT people and the way that we use uh, religious expression and how it's being interpreted has changed. So the law has changed. And uh, Representative Vitale actually mentioned uh, RIFRA in his testimony, although, again, this has not necessarily um, clear defining of what this would do in the bill, but uh, there have been nationwide efforts, and it's what you've heard um, in Indiana um, a few years ago about using Religious Freedom Restoration Acts as a reason to discriminate against LGBTQ people. And so that's why this term religious societies is connected. Again, everything's connected. We're all um, working to stop this bill because even though it does restate First Amendment protections, this, this religious society and the use of church commercial property saying it's okay to discriminate uh, is something we feel like we need to draw a line in the sand now because culture has changed. Thing, the issue has changed to the point where if we don't stop this, it will become a slippery slope. Yeah. You say it's, it's restating the First Amendment. It's like as, as if George Orwell was restating the First Amendment. <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally twisted around. <laughs> Very twisted. Yeah, and, and these, these Religious Freedom Restoration Acts... Um, you know, which I, I don't, you know, this, which this isn't, you know, you might be able to interpret part of it as a, you know, a smaller version of one, but, um, you know, they were intended to protect religious minorities. You know, we're talking Native Americans and, you know, very niche cases. Um, and now what we're seeing is that rather than protect religious minorities, they're really protecting religious majorities, right? right. Um, the far right who want to discriminate against LGBTQ people, um, and want to do it without getting caught or <laughs> breaking the law or having any kind of recourse to them. Um, it's basically a response to LGBTQ people being more visible in, in public life and, and, in, and in public affairs. So they went from being used, we, we say, like, as a shield, you know, to protect themselves to a sword, you know, something that right. is, on the, is on the offense. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, I would say it's not so much protecting the majority but it's it is it's giving uh yeah fair fair point it, yeah, yeah <laughs> was it's, i mean they don't they don't need protection but within that majority there is you know a a bigoted <laughs> a bigoted faction and it is giving them you know something to uh to use as a tool against uh you know that yeah the there, there's community. an element that's that's yeah. actively resisting the the gains made by lgbtq folks yeah yeah um, okay, so so three and a half hours last night um, of of were these all proponent witnesses, opponent witnesses? They were all opponent, all opponents. So this is our side. Yep, speaking to the committee about why this is a bad idea. Um, so for for three and a half hours, that's I mean that's impressive. I, how many witnesses was that? That's got to be a couple dozen witnesses. Uh, fourteen on the record, and I think uh, twelve or thirteen showed up. Yes, okay. uh, and three and a half hours is a pretty long um, yeah. hearing for yeah. those who aren't familiar with the legislative process. Uh, it's not typical to have right. a three and a half hour hearing to, to ban something that's already illegal, or you know, this this right. is when the animal house uh, double secret probation kicks in. It's like no, no, that's that's already 
set up in the law this way. You're just restating the law, but being evil about it, you know? Well, and we, you know, we were making the case that um, this is an unnecessary piece of legislation. And primarily the witnesses were clergy, members of the, members of the clergy. So uh, the proponents were also clergy members. So, I mean, this is how the legislative process is designed. And last night, a lot of the witnesses made it clear that they did not feel threatened by marriage equality, that they felt that this legislation was sending a message of harm. And the questions mainly revolved around, well, if it's redundant, then why are you here? And the response of, well, we're not targeting LGBTQ people. This has nothing to do with that. So it's really hard to when you don't address the elephant in the room, it's hard to make progress on an issue. And it's hard to feel heard when right. we can't talk about what we're really talking about. Right. Yeah. That came up more than once where, you know, the clear sentiment was how, how am I going to explain this to young LGBTQ people in my church who see this for what it is? You know, what, what am I supposed to tell them? And then, you know, the refrain from the, from, the, from the legislators and people in support of this bill was, show me where it says same-sex marriage, which it doesn't. But the, the clear impetus for this is um, because some pastors don't agree with, with same-sex marriage. Um, so that tension, uh, like, like, like Lisa was mentioning, the clear elephant in the room was there's animus against LGBTQ people here. Right. The bill... Also, it's pointless. It's a waste of time and money. We spent three and a half hours uh, proving all of that. Um, and I also got the sense from some pastors that they felt a, a, a bit patronized, that you know, they already know their rights. They, for some things, they answer to the laws of man, and for some things, they answer to the laws of God. And uh, you know, they don't care what the state house does. Also, why are you doing this? You can't legislate the laws of God. Like, right. That's that's up to me and my church, right? And yeah. you know, the ACLU was there to say, and if you do try to legislate the laws of God, that we will step in <laughs> and we will file a lawsuit. <laughs> which is, um, you know, another thing they said the legislation was going to prevent lawsuits, which you can't stop lawsuits from happening. They've, right. They've kind of dropped. That was their main point um, during the last session of the General Assembly, which expired in December. Um, and so that was their point last time, and now their point seemed to have has shifted from, well, we're just trying to prevent lawsuits to, well, people are telling us they're afraid that, they're, that this Obergefell decision is going to change and they're going to be forced to marry outside of their faith tradition and that we need to protect them from that fear, which we have no facts or evidence of, but just in case in the future that would happen. And, you know, and then they would say, well, where, where, this isn't about gay people. And we would say, well, the context of the bill is, is as much as that. It's, you know, just because it's not written on the words of the paper doesn't mean that's not what you mean. And it just went round and round and round. Right. 
that same phrase over and over again. Yeah. And, you know, it's on its face absolutely ri- ridiculous because in the man oh, the who whole introduced this, yeah, oh, the man okay. who introduces things cites two lawsuits from the LGBT, from LGBTQ folks. Right. And Representative Ron Young asked nearly everybody in attendance, at least while he was there before he left, um, before it was over, he asked about uh, local businesses and if they discriminate against LGBTQ people, if they should have to endure, you know, the, the public backlash that comes, you know, or if they should be, you know, protected somehow. I'm not sure what kind of magic we could do to legislate public opinion, but um, he kept asking these questions. And so the man who's introducing this bill, people who are asking questions about it are all talking about LGBTQ issues. Right. And then saying, no, this isn't about gay people. It's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. No, nobody wants to get married by your bigoted pastor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no one's going to come to to your church that hates gay people and say, Hey, can we have our lesbian wedding here? <laughs> I mean, that would be a hell of an invitation, right? Where it's like, you know, come for, you know, the reception. We, we'll have a chicken wing bar and uh, get a load of this pastor. We're forcing this guy to do this. Right. He hates every minute of it. It's going to be a beautiful day. <laughs> Three and a half hours to discuss this. Yeah. Nobody wants to get married in your awful church, people. <laughs> and I think the other... Um, the other harm that this bill does, in addition to just, you know, sending a terrible message right now, especially the under uh, the pressure that everybody is under, you know, we're hearing both from both of our organizations, from people who have been fired from their jobs or can't find housing um, or denied services because of who they are. Right. And so we're sitting here debating a bill that has no evidence of harm except for the message that it sends to LGBTQ people, while we're hearing of evidence of actual harm and they're not doing anything about it. Right. So what are you going to tell people who are actually being harmed because they're not protected? Right. And they, of course, don't have an answer for that. Right. Shameful. Uh, okay, so that was, there's been proponent, there's been opponent. Normally, if you get those two, then the next hearing, it's interested parties, and, and this thing would go to a committee vote. To, do we think that there's a chance that this will actually pass uh, pass the, the House? I, uh, I, I ask it don't have a crystal but, ball, but, um, you know, certainly we can look at what happened last time where it did get out of committee and, it, you know, it didn't quite make it to a, to a floor vote. But, you know, it was introduced very quickly. It has a low bill number. It was assigned to committee. It's already gone through two um, Right. This two, is mid-February, and they're, yeah. they're a chunk of the way through the first part. Exactly. Which is really fast for the Ohio legislature. <laughs> yeah. So if that doesn't feel like a priority or and, and, you know, and the House, signal. which is also working on the budget right now. So, so they actually do have other shit to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we, we are concerned with how fast it's moving. Okay. Um, yeah, we, uh, we here in the NARAL office share that concern. Uh, Jamie was at the hearing. She was tweeting it. Uh, so, uh, if folks were following along, um, you know, it, it definitely speaks to sort of that, uh, level of bodily autonomy, uh, that we believe in. Um, you know, nobody's, uh, religious, uh, <laughs> religious views should, uh, infringe upon what, you know, you could do, including who you marry. 
Um, so we do feel pretty strongly about that. Um, and, and, you know, even though our organization is a, it's a pro choice, it, it does have a bit of a narrow focus to it. Um, you know, we, we feel that our supporters either already do care about this or, you know, with a little bit of education, they definitely should. So, um, so we'll keep an eye on this one. Um, and and if I could just interject, sorry, Gabe, Uh, we, we do have an action alert. Um, oh, on this issue. Okay. Uh, so you we'll can put go, a link to that in the show notes. Yes. Um, so you can send an email uh, to your legislator as well as the, as well as the Speaker of the House um, to express your concerns about the legislation and uh, to let them know that they that you do not want this bill to move. Okay. Um. So uh, that's a an ACLU uh, action alert. Uh, what else is the ACLU doing? You guys have had a hell of a year so far, <laughs> uh, both know, in Ohio fe- and nationally. It's only February. <laughs> right. Uh, so um, there is the national ACLU, uh, which has made a lot of the news coverage yeah. <laughs> uh, for the great work that they have been doing on um, the immigration ban yes. that happened. Um, that was pretty rapid fire. Uh, and so for the ACLU of Ohio, uh, our part, uh, we are preparing uh, for the uh, Trump administration and what has happened, um, especially uh, boosting coalition work, uh, working together in ways that we haven't in the past, um, because this is about unifying together. Um, we are building a network of volunteer attorneys uh, These are the folks hanging out in the airports so far. (laughs) So far. Um, I mean, they'll do other stuff, but that's where we've seen them. And that's totally badass. Yes. Oh, yes. The legal observers. Um, And this is actually something that would be separate from that. Um, So we're we're starting to have trainings uh, for people who are interested in working on civil liberties issues specifically. um, Because, uh, and despite the... um, national fundraising records for the ACLU, uh, we still need lawyers. <laughs> and uh, the, the... The AC- good kind. The good kind, <laughs> right? Um, and we need... Uh, we need support and then... And then some, you know, we... It's national ACLU um, has... so We focus on so many issues as well as at the state level. So, you know, I work on seven issue areas and LGBTQ reproductive rights are two of my main areas. But uh, the work that we were doing previously to the Trump administration um, has not changed. So, you know, there's still overcrowding in our prisons. There's still private prison issues. There's still um, people being arrested for um, nonviolent drug crimes. There's... uh, still some juvenile justice issues that need to be handled in our schools. So, you know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done that will not get any easier under the Trump administration. It wasn't easy under the Obama administration, and it will continue to get more difficult, especially at the state level right? with the state legislature feeling emboldened. Right. Um. And so uh, in, in the, the upside of all of this is uh, there's been a, a national um, 
uh, fundraising wave to, to help support uh, your organization. Um, you know, what, what I heard, and this was like the headlines, is $24 million raised for, for the national ACLU. Are you guys seeing a nice boost uh, wave of support similarly here in Ohio? Uh, we are seeing a boost, not, not $24 million. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we're seeing a boost of members. So, uh, you know, these are people who uh, sign up for emails or, I mean, just being aware is a huge issue. And I think that's what's changing is awareness and the level of activism. So uh, we're... You know, we are seeing a boost in donations, but it's something that we know that we've needed a boost in donations for for a while, right? Because we want to continue to expand our work that we're doing, and when you're faced with new crises, that only furthers the demand. So we do split some donations with National to get technical about it. Yeah, sure, but. Uh, it's generally on a delay and it depends on the funds and yeah. it's very complicated. And so people, if they want to give, should give locally. They should give locally and, and nationally as well. So sure. I don't want to, uh, our national ACLU has plenty of work to do <laughs> as we right. have seen as well. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's great to see people first time activists. So I went to the, the women's March in DC and just to see how that has changed the landscape, uh, and I went to the, the march locally here uh, at the airport uh, and to see, you know, I think there was probably, my guess would be 2,000 people showed up. And that's unprecedented. Yeah. And especially the work that, you know, I know that there's been some um, row activist trainings that NARAL has had. Yes. That have been very well attended. So it's people power that yeah. is so important right now. Yeah, first time activists too. I, I was also at the airport and met several people who uh, were just out for the first time and trying to figure out, like, am, am I doing this right? Is, is, this, is this okay? Yes, you are. You got <laughs> off <Yep>. the couch. <laughs> Step, Step one, one, check. <laughs> it's, it's Believe kind of... it or not, that's the one that so many people stumble on. <laughs> out the front door, go to the thing. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, yeah. people have so much going on in their lives, and yeah. it. I really commend people for getting out there and it, it can be intimidating. Like, how do I march? What do I say? What do I do? Just show up. Just show up. We'll, we'll help you with step two. <laughs> you have to do step one on your own. Get off the couch. <laughs> it's what I say about meeting with your state legislators. You know, it's just yeah. that step of doing it for the first time. Yeah. And especially, you know, the national level is very important. But at the state level, we can make such a huge impact. Uh, as a former aide in the legislature, uh, we used to say that a letter counts as 50 votes. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, to think that you can have the impact of 50 people right. is pretty powerful at right. the state level. And, I mean, these are the people that are making the laws that are harming us. It, it's the, how, and it's your school system, it's your taxes, it's, yeah. um, you know, 18, 19 abortion restrictions signed into law under the Kasich administration. I mean, it's, it's things that impact us locally as well. Right. Yeah. I always have to make my pitch for state <laughs> activism. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so our last segment we always do is called Let's Get It On. It's where we tell folks uh, about what are upcoming events. Uh, normally, Randy on our staff sings Let's Get It On um, by <laughs> Marvin Gaye. Would either of you care to... Uh, <laughs> I don't no, think I'm as crying. talented as Randy. Yeah. I don't know Grant's yeah, no, singing I skills. Hate to break these coffee cups we have on the table here, so <laughs> okay. I'll pass. Uh, upcoming events. Uh, just first to, to clarify, a past event. Last night we had a terrific comedy event, Stand Up for Choice, out at Ace of Cups uh, here in Columbus. Absolutely just wall-to-wall sold out, packed house, raised over $2,000. We're so very grateful to the comedians, to the venue, um, to uh, the supporters who literally baked cupcakes and cookies uh, with, uh, with vulgar little sayings uh, <laughs> icinged onto them. Um, uh, absolutely terrific event last night. So uh, thank you to them. Um, the next one for us is in Dayton. It's one of these row together activist events that Lisa mentioned. Um, NARAL, Planned Parenthood, Women Have Options, I got to stop listing them because then I got to feel like I remember everybody in the group for our future (laughs) and some other really cool groups. Um, We'll put together this event. You can find information. uh, It's this Saturday. Uh, If you still want to come, you can. uh, Just RSVP. The link will be in the show notes. Um, Last week, we heard from Stephanie Sherwood with Women Have Options. Uh, Their bowling uh, event kickoff party is going to be on March 2nd uh, at PINS which is really cool. I play pinball there. Um, uh, and then they've got a swap for our sisters clothing swap on March 25th, which is another really cool event. You can bring in a couple bags of gently used um, clothes and hand over 10 bucks, and then it's all-you-can-carry-out clothing. Wow. So, yeah, it's a great clothing exchange uh, fundraiser. Um, and it's for uh, gender nonconforming as well. Yes, um, uh, and then that goes to benefit women have options. Um, so check out last week's episode if you want to learn more about that organization. Uh, and then on June 1st is an Equality Ohio event. This is Cincinnati Allies for Equality. What's yep. that? Uh, every year we honor um, an ally in uh, different cities in Ohio. And on June 1st, we're going to be honoring an ally yet to be named in the Cincinnati area. And uh, it's always it's always a really fun event to see somebody who uh, you know is cisgender, who is straight, who is giving their all for uh, LGBTQ equality. So it's it's usually a great time. Um, if you follow us at Equality Ohio um, or or get get on our email list at equalityohio.org, then uh, you'll know when we announce who the uh, Ally of the Year is for 2016 in, 2017 in Cincinnati. Cool. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll share your event for that, um, when it, when it pops up closer to that date, Thanks. um, on our Facebook page. So check out that. Where can people find information about ACLU? ACLUofohio.org. And, uh, we're also on Facebook at ACLU of Ohio and Twitter as well. Okay. And if you're ever in the state house, you'll find them, uh, pacing the halls and demanding <laughs> to sue somebody. So it's pretty cool. Okay. Well, thank you both for coming. Thank you for having us. Thank you. See everybody next week. Bye.